As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to Bigfoot Eyewitness Radio. For centuries, eyewitnesses have reported seeing giant creatures in the woods of North America and beyond. These forest giants have been known by many names, including Sasquatch, Oma, Yowie, Yeti, and their most commonly used name, Bigfoot. Join us as eyewitnesses share the details of their encounters with these forest giants on the show. And now your host, Vic Kundi. Hi everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Bigfoot Eyewitness Radio. Tonight's guest is Ryan Reading. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Doing good, and you? No, not too bad. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Let's jump right into this, Ryan. What kind of things can't you do now that you used to do after having those two encounters? Well, uh, I used to do a lot of metal detecting and, and hunting and fishing on my own. I don't really do that anymore. I, I just stay out of the woods. If I'm not with somebody, I'm not going in the woods alone. Yeah, I can't say I'll blame you there, especially after seeing what you've seen. Definitely. What do most people who haven't seen a Sasquatch have wrong about the experience? What do they have wrong? I would say they have it all wrong. Based on my sightings, a lot of people guess, I think or they have issues, or they go ahead and say things that really didn't happen. It boils down to a few different things, but I I don't want to get into that right now. Oh, no, I can understand. Did you learn anything about yourself as a direct result of having those encounters? Well, I don't know if I learned anything about myself, but I learned a lot about the woods. I learned a lot about what is out there. I learned that, you know, I've, I've become a, some type of a researcher based on what I've witnessed in the woods. I'm more aware of what goes you know, on around me, things like that. 
Yeah, those are all good practices right there. I know you research Sasquatch, but do you consider yourself to be a researcher? Well, I'm kind of still on the border with that. I had the two sightings. I'm, I'm getting into research. I guess if somebody wants to call me a researcher, I call myself a knower. That's what I call myself. Some people get a little testy about that. They go out there into the woods and beat the bushes looking for them, but if you call them a researcher, they get a little testy. I just wanted to check to see where you stood on that. You could call me a researcher. I mean, that's fine. That's no problem. Because of all the work you've done looking into Sasquatch, you are based out of the state of New York. You found out about this law that's in place there with regards to possessing or collecting samples from wild animals. Please tell us about that. Recently, I looked into it. What I really want to do is prove that they exist. I know that they exist. I've seen them. So the right way to go about it is try to get samples, try to get DNA, scat, saliva, you know, whatever it may be from this particular species, whatever they are. So I contacted our local DEC department here in New York State, which is the main offices in Albany, New York. I'm actually Western New York, Chautauqua County. But I contacted them, I asked them a few things, and they sent me a letter back stating that anyone that wants to collect any type of sample from any wildlife in the wild has to have a specific type of license. Uh, You have to fill out a bunch of paperwork, you pay them a certain fee, and then it gets processed and sent in. And then they'll either okay you or deny you based on what you've stated to them. But to collect any type of uh, sample, you have to have a license. I've never really heard of it in any other state, but, you know, New York has obviously asked for that. So to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly, if you're out there in the woods and see a tuft of fur from a deer, if you want to collect that, if you want to stick that in your pocket, then by law you're supposed to have that particular license. That would be correct. If you're going to use that for any scientific research or have it tested, any type of collection from any wildlife in the wild, you have to have that type of license, yes. Wow, that's really strange. I don't know of any other states that have a statute like that in place. I'm sure there are others, but if there are, I don't know of any like that. And going back to talk about the comment you just made about the DEC, what does that stand for? That is our Department of Environmental Conservation Office. Oh, okay. I see. Why do you think, after so much effort, we still don't have any conclusive proof that they exist? There's many theories. It could be anything from bad timing on anyone's part to uh, somebody that had a sighting and went into shock and just couldn't get their camera out. It could be a multitude of things. People could be doing the research in wrong ways. It seems that people kind of are pushed to the forefront in our research. Everybody lines up behind certain people of what they believe is to be the right way of something to be done. I would say you have to be more of a leader and kind of do your own thing and and figure out what is right, what kind of responses you're going to get out of it. If you're having a lot of luck, maybe you're doing something right. But as far as why we really don't 
have the evidence we need. I don't know if I could say exactly why. Yeah, there are probably a thousand reasons why we don't have that proof yet, but I thought I'd throw that question at you anyway. Okay. All right, Ryan, let's talk about this first encounter you had. Please give us every last detail that comes to mind. Okay. Uh, this encounter happened in May of 2013. I'm from Chautauqua County, New York, and uh, one of my main hobbies was to go metal detecting. So what I would do is use old maps, look on the maps, you know, from the 1800s, and try to find old home sites off in the woods uh, to go do some metal detecting around, which, you know, I loved it. You know, find all kinds of stuff. So in, in 2013, I did my normal thing and found a regular home site that I wanted to go to and, you know, packed up, had it out, went to the site, had my dog with me, uh, tied my dog up, you know, maybe 100 yards or so behind me. He kind of would get tangled in my coil and be around my feet, so I just kept him off to the side, and, you know, he was still with me. So I was there for a little while doing some detecting, and I started up, a, like, an embankment, and there was a few uh, home structures there. You could see the cellar hole and an old well, real big. So, you know, I did some detecting, and I was kind of heading toward a little clearing area, and I had to go under a branch. It was really low, so I, I ducked down, stepped under this branch, looked back up, and it's kind of like an uphill from where I was looking. I caught something out of my left eye, and I looked back down. I really didn't realize uh, what I had seen at the time. So I took like another step, and it kind of registered as I looked back down what I had seen. So I looked up uh, out of reaction again, and there it was. It was standing there halfway kind of um, behind a tree. Uh, you could see like half the body. But what it was doing is it was turning around abruptly, going down onto all fours, heading away from me. It was going at a rapid speed. I mean, it it covered probably... 200 yards, you know, in like four seconds, something like that. When it turned around, I could kind of see its hand. I seen like the, the fingers on the hand. It was a really long hand. It was jet black, really, really, really black, really long arms. To me, the body would be what I would describe as lanky, you know, like a slinky, lanky. That would be the most appropriate word that I could come up with. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Very agile. Wasn't like a bear. I'm a hunter, so I kind of know what bear do. They waddle when they take off. Any, any bear hunter would probably know that. Uh, this wasn't like that. It was more like a human type of way that it ran away from me. But, like, in the facial that I got to see, it looked more like a chimp. It looked younger. So that is why I believed it was a juvenile. But not at the time. I didn't really know any of this until later on when I started doing research, what all these terms were and what they, they actually called them. So that was a really quick sighting that my first one was. But it, it scared me. It shocked me. So what I did is I didn't turn the machine off, my detector, nothing. I just ran back got to the dog, untied him, got to the truck, put it in gear, started up, took off. I was gone. Came to the house, sat down on the couch, put the dog away. It was kind of, you know, still in shock. So I, I talked with one of my family members and kind of told them about the whole situation that had just happened. Based on the reaction that I got from them, nobody really believes in this sort of thing. So I decided to kind of keep that to myself. I didn't really want to tell anybody anything. So I just kept it under my hat. It's hard to tell people what you've experienced if somebody wasn't with you or you don't have pictures. So I just kept it to myself. Now that you're into researching them, I'm sure if you go out and have an experience like that, the first thing that you're going to do when you come back is start making phone calls to spread that information around, though, I'm sure, aren't you? I, I don't really like to spread it around. You know, I mean, it's a yay-nay type of situation there. <laughs> I don't know if you had other researchers that you compared notes with that you would contact after another encounter or not? Not after just particular encounters, but I do take field notes now. I do have a journal. I do certain things. I was in, you know, a small documentary that a local person had completed. Some big names were in it. I have some of my friends that do research with me. So there are a lot of things that have come of, you know, my sightings. But as far as sharing my notes, I've talked back and forth a few times with one researcher in particular and got some options and some ideas. But as far as, like, what I really want to do, is go into proving that they exist with the DNA factor. I'd like to get science more involved, and I think the only way that we're going to do that is if we take a leading role, whether it's independent or in groups. But the more you start to group people together, things get jumbled up, 
the way I look at it. So if I have just a couple people that I can talk to and figure things out, that's probably the best way to go about it from my standpoint. That does sound like a really good way to handle it. Did you get a good enough look at this juvenile to be able to tell the shape of its head? Yes, this first sighting was only about 30 feet from me. It was more round. It wasn't like your standard cone shape that everybody states. It was more round. Like I stated, the face kind of looked more like a chimp facial, if you can picture that. It had a really big mouth. It, it, it did, but it, it was... Uh, the, the lower half of the face was like a lighter color, but the whole rest of it was jet black, but the head was more round. From what I understand, a sagittal crest is a function of size. I think it was Grover Krantz who mentioned that until you get to be so big, you're not going to tend to have a sagittal crest. Is it your impression that that juvenile didn't have one because it was still a juvenile, or do you think maybe it was a type 2 and even after it was mature, wouldn't develop one? Well, that's a good way to ask that question. The only thing I can state is that is what I saw. And based on what I saw, having more of a round head, I mean, you can do the research and follow either one of those theories, but I guess we would really never know until we had maybe a juvenile or a adult either studied or whatever in captivity or whatever you'd want to say about that. But I can only give you aspects of what I saw. What you saw, what you remember, that's what I'm looking for here. So I appreciate that. As it was standing there, you mentioned it was on two legs when you saw it. Did you see details in its hands well enough to notice if it had any peculiar qualities to its thumbs? It was very brief time that I was able to see his hand. I think it is because it did look like there was something in the male region in his lower portion there. So I believed it to be a male, but he had turned around so abruptly. And when he did that, his hand did swing out. The thumb looked a little shorter compared to his digits. His, his, his hand looked longer. Like I said, he was more lanky. Uh, the whole overall picture of him was, was lanky. He wasn't like a big, bold, you know, he was younger. You could tell. Uh, he was approximately, I'm guessing, in the range because I did not measure. He would be in the five foot to five and a half foot range and very agile. But the thumb itself, I couldn't tell it positioning or anything, but it looked shorter than his digits because his digits were fairly long. I see. Yeah, I'm sure you were trying to take in so many details. You were in such shock that no one could fault you for not studying its thumbs to notice any more details about them. What I'm getting at with this question was whether its thumbs looked like they were non-opposable. From a lot of the handprints that I've seen that were supposedly left by a Sasquatch, it sure looks to me like that thumb is not opposable like our thumbs would be. So that's what I was getting at with that question there. Yeah, I mean, I kind of figured that was the direction, but I, I, I cannot say for sure. Like I said, I could just, I, I just seen it very briefly. I actually seen the fingers quicker. You know, it, the, the thumb was kind of hidden the way it was turning around, and i just seen it. 
So it was, it was fast. Uh, so I don't want to relay any information that would be not accurate. Oh, no, I understand, and I appreciate that. When this was all going on, did your dog ever give any indications that it knew the Sasquatch was there? Did it go crazy? Did it go quiet? What was your dog doing? No, actually, my dog was tied up. Like I said, by, by this time, it was like 100 yards behind me. He was just tied up to the tree. I believe that he didn't even know it was there. And the only reason I'm saying that is I think the wind was in the wrong direction. That was the only conclusion that I could come up with, that he was not able to smell him because he could not see him based on the distance. So I believe that since the dog couldn't smell him, if the wind was in the wrong direction, you know, he had no inclination that he was there. Because you said earlier on that the dog was tied up so far away from you, like you said, to avoid him getting underfoot, I wondered if he didn't even know the Sasquatch was there. But still, even 100 yards, I guess, would be close enough where under the right circumstances, he could still see that Sasquatch, or like you said, depending on the wind's direction, even smell it. So I thought I'd ask. Yeah, that's kind of the conclusion that I came up with, because I wondered myself why he did not alert or bark or anything like that nature. But the only thing, he, he probably, at that distance, it wasn't a straight shot because I was up the hill on the embankment to the left. So he possibly could have not seen it regardless. But as far as smell, I think that the wind was in the wrong direction. Obviously, I didn't test it or check it because I wasn't into that or I, I wasn't doing that. But otherwise, I think he, he might have alerted to him. Oh, that makes sense. What time of day did this encounter happen? This one was right around the 4 p.m. mark. Around 4 p.m. Being of sound mind and obviously having good eyesight, it kind of surprised me to hear in the pre-interview that after having that encounter, you started to question yourself. You started to wonder if you really had seen what you thought you had seen. Please tell us about that. Uh, Yeah, that is something that is hard to deal with. I don't know really how to put it into the best terms, but after seeing something like that and going in the shock, uh, you really don't speak with a lot of people on it, so it kind of sticks with you, and anyway, it stuck with me. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I kind of just held it in, and then I started questioning myself because I didn't have anybody there to kind of back up my claim. And I was almost trying to get it out of my mind to the point where, you know, was I imagining that? Did I just, did that really happen to me? Is is, is this what, you know, really happened? And as far as um, that situation went, I, I just kind of, I questioned myself. And I just, I, I didn't want to tell anybody. Like I said, I, I told one family member and it kind of got, I got a, a null and void reaction. But after that, I just I just kept it silent. So it, it was hard to to deal with. So maybe that's why I was questioning myself. I'm not sure. Yeah, after getting a response like that, I don't think I could blame you for claiming up. Just a bit ago, you talked about this documentary that you were involved with. Please tell us about that. I'd love to know more. Oh, okay. I shared some of my evidence. The, the documentary is called "I've Seen Bigfoot." A friend of mine, uh, his name is Peter Weimer, he's the director, he actually set this uh, whole thing up. And the reason I became involved in it is a friend of mine who had seen some of my posts online said, hey, you know, I have a friend that is doing the, a documentary and they'd like to talk to you. So it was a whole learning experience for myself, which I didn't mind. You know, I shared some of my casts and some of my theories and, and some things in, in the area. They did a recreation of everything that happened to me. And so it was it was a whole learning curve. Uh, there were some big names in there, you know, Gimlin, Bob Gimlin, Mr. Steve Calls. Uh, they shared a lot of their experiences in the documentary. So it was really good. Uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I got to see a lot of different perspectives from them. So I can only add it as a bonus, but it's called I've Seen Bigfoot. Huh, I'm going to have to check that out when I get a chance. I don't know all that much about Bob Gimlin. He seems like a really nice, genuine man. As far as Steve Coles goes, I love the dynamic he brings to the Sasquatch community with a great sense of humor like he's got, but when it's time to get serious, he gets really serious. I'm really impressed by him. So, yeah, that's really impressive that you've got that on your resume, being part of that documentary. Steve's a great guy. Uh, like you said, he, you know, he, he has his fun while he's in the woods. He enjoys the outdoors. But when it is time to get serious and, and do what he needs to do, get down to the nitty-gritty, he does it. You know, he runs his websites, and he does everything, you know, appropriately. He, he dots his eyes and crosses his teeth. He, he's a good guy. He does seem like a really impressive guy. All right, Ryan, let's get into the second encounter you had. Please give us every last detail that comes to mind. This encounter was in 2014, actually the same month, uh, it happened to be May, 
that's kind of when the weather breaks around here after a really long winter. So that's when we kind of get out of the house and get to metal detecting. And that's, you know, you, you want some freedom. So we do the same thing, you know, every year, go out, have fun, get to the old map, start looking for, you know, old house foundations, cellar holes, where, where to go dig things up, relics and whatnot. So we actually headed, it would be two to three miles from the first sighting, but it's actually the same tract of land. It's around 4,000 acres. So we we go down, and it's like a dead-end road, and drive up the dead-end road to a parking area. It's still partial state forest. You know, we park the vehicle. We, I'm, we're not thinking anything about a Sasquatch or, or Bigfoot or anything like this. You know, we're just out enjoying the day, melody detecting. So we headed up there. We got to the old home sites, and, you know, it's right around 2.30-ish. So we did some detecting all over the place. We ended up taking a break between somewhere around 4 and 4.30. Actually smoked a cigarette, and we were just talking. And I kind of told my buddy, I said, hey, you know, I got this feeling. I got a weird feeling. He's like, well, what do you mean? I said, you ever had that feeling like you're being watched? He was like, well, I know what you're talking about, but no, I'm good. I said, well, you know, just keep that under your hat. That's the feeling that I got. So he's kind of like, well, no, I'm I'm good with that. I, I don't have nothing going on. I, I don't have no weird feeling. And right as I, we said this, uh, two hikers walked by, male and a female. One guy, he had the uh, like a yellow hiker's coat on, and she had like a, a pink hiker's coat on. So they waved, and off the trail they went. It's about, I don't know, three miles to the other side. It's one big track of land. It, it, it's actually an old horse and buggy trail that is maintained for people to snowmobile on in the winter. So they, they hiked off, and, you know, we didn't think nothing of it, so we got back to detect him. He actually headed back out toward the horse and buggy trail, which is kind of in an opening uh, between two sets of woods. It looks like a big power line, actually, but there's no power line. Uh, the distance between the two tracks of woods is maybe like 50 yards, so it's kind of, you know, it's open. So he headed off. And he started to go up toward a set of pines, maybe 70, 80 yards. And then I watched him cut in. I said, okay, well, if he's going to cut in and, and go to that side and detect those old home foundations over there, I'm just going to stay on this side and, you know, hit around these cellar holes that are over here. So we did that, I don't know, seemed like forever, you know, finding all kinds of stuff. Maybe like two hours, two and a half hours, something around the 630 mark. I decided, I said, well, I'm going to head back out. I said, I'm going to head toward the uh, trail, you know, try to wrap up the day. It's, it's starting to get late. So as I come out of the woods, I, I hit like a little field patch before you get to your horse and buggy trail, that I call it, because that's what it was in the 1800s. And I see him down out of my peripheral to the left, down below me. He's coming out of his tract of woods. So I'm swinging, swinging. And I hear him say something to me because he made it to the trail before I did. And he said, look. So I, I really didn't hear him, so I pulled off my headphone. I said, what did you say? And I looked at him, and he says, look, there's people or person or something up the trail. And I said, what? So I pulled my headphones down, and I looked. At this time, he has walked up to me, and we're standing shoulder to shoulder. And... We looked, and we're watching something, and at, at first you couldn't really make out what it was. It was just very big. It looked like it was crouching down in what I call like a, 
not attack mode, but it, it's creeping. It's like creeping forward, like it's stalking or something. We were just like watching it. Well, when it actually realized that we were watching it, it stood up. It, it went from maybe like a, a five foot height in the crouch position to what we know now is an around a 10 foot height. And that's just based on some follow up research. But this was, I don't know, he was probably in the range of two to three hundred paces from us or feet from us. It's not that far being in, in an open area. You can see it's not like we were obscured by trees or brush or in the woods. It was open. You could see he was jet black. He was massive. He was in the, in the range of four feet wide, very muscular, but not bulky. You could see some of the muscles in the arms, right through the hair. You could, you could see it all. There was some hair on the face, but it, it kind of stopped right around the cheek area. So that was still kind of exposed. You could see the black in the face. You could see a really defined, what I know now is called a brow ridge and a, and a slope head to the back a little bit. But, but the brow ridge was massively heavy. I, I, I at the time I didn't know what it was, but it, it was huge. The eyes were kind of, they were big, but I, I can't tell you from that distance exactly how big they were. The arms are very long around the knee areas where they hung down to. We had like this really long interaction to the point of like 40 to 45 seconds. And kind of what, I, I would call it like a shock or a stupor is what we were in. We were just stargazed at what we were seeing because... I've never really seen anything that big. You know, it kind of flips everything upside down in your mind. So we started to mutter back and forth to each other, like, what it could be. And I, I kind of uttered out, you know, hey, that's a Bigfoot, dude. And he was like, no way. Like, oh, my God. And as I said that, it turned. And when it turned, you could see how big its legs actually were, how massive the thigh was. It turned and took two steps, and in those two steps, each stride was give or take around six feet. And that's not running. That's from a, a dead-stopping walk heading off into just the woods. But when it took those large strides, the sun was setting behind it, if you can picture that. That day, the, the sun was like orange. So you could see the orange haze actually filter through his legs in the stride. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. So the two steps, and he was gone. 
but on his way out, his head actually hit a branch uh, where the pine trees come out. It's hard to explain. And when his head hit that, that gave us a reference point later on, because we were curious, to go back and measure that height, which ended up being around the 10 foot 6 mark. So if you give or take 6 inches or 8 inches or something like that. So that's why I stated it was in the 10-foot range. He was very big, very broad shoulders. I, I can't get over that, like how big he was. It's kind of like etched in my mind. Oh, I'm sure it is. When you say it hit its head on that branch, did it graze that branch, or did it really impact that branch like it was a mistake on its part? It was more like a mistake, but if anybody knows if you're in the wilderness a lot, and a lot of the pine trees, the 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 branches slope. They, like, have this U-shape that they come off, like a Christmas tree. They slope off, you know. Um, so they go down and then back up a little bit. And he kind of, like, just turned right off and he hit that. And when he hit that one, it just shook, you know, violently. So, but it was, it was toward the end. It wasn't, like, a real super big branch, but it was a branch enough to give us a reference to where, you know, where he walked in and how tall it actually was. It's funny. We've got this image of them as being these ninjas in the woods that are so graceful and never make any mistakes, but apparently they make mistakes too. That almost would have been kind of funny to see, but being in such shock, I guess it probably wouldn't have been for you when you were there. No, that it was, definitely wasn't funny at the time. Now, I mean, you could look back and say, you know, eh, that, that was you know amazing, that was funny, but when when that was going on, that was that was all seriousness. That was amazing. I feel lucky. I feel lucky to have two sightings. Some people go a whole research career that they're doing or, or following and, and don't have any sightings or any evidence. And I've been lucky to get evidence, and I've, I've been lucky now. You know, I've had these two sightings, so it, it's it's amazing. Oh, I'd say it is. Now, you said that that encounter went on for about 30 to 45 seconds as far as how long you're actually looking at it. During any of this time, did you have the means to snap a picture of it? To this day, I wish I could have. My phone uh, was actually right in my detecting bag, which is like a fanny pack on your waist. It was right in my pouch. No, I did not, and I was not able to get a photo it was kind of what I call a stupor. It's like shock. Uh, what I know now, I got like tunnel vision. And during that tunnel vision, I was really examining what I was seeing. I was, I, I wasn't, I wasn't focused on anything else but what I was seeing. So the thought of taking a photo never entered my mind. I'm not a photographer. I'm not, the, I, you know, I was a metal detectorist. That's what I did. That was my hobby. And having this second sighting, it didn't dawn on me to even just just to take a photo or anything like that. The size of it is what was captivating. It, it the best word I can use is awe. Um, and now I can see why people that are not ready to have a sighting or have a sighting unexpectedly because they're hiking or biking or fishing or hunting or metal detecting or whatever it may be, they're just out there doing their, you know, their hobby. And they have these sightings, but yet they end up getting so traumatized when they see these species. 
that's what happened to me. You know, I ended up getting some type of trauma out of this, which kind of inadvertently turned me into researching, which, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go more toward that now. But it's been an experience. Oh, I'm sure it was. I'm not surprised in the least that you didn't think to pull that phone out and take a picture of that Sasquatch. I think way too many people are unfairly critical of eyewitnesses who don't pull out a camera or a cell phone and snap a photo. Like you just mentioned, when you go through something like that, that's the last thing that's going to be on your mind. So that's totally understandable. Yeah, it really is. I mean, unless you're out there really researching with a camera or trying to do things or, you know, that's your MO. If you're really trying to get photos or something, then I could be upset with somebody saying, you know, oh, you didn't pull out a camera or you're a bird watcher. You don't, you didn't have a photo or, I mean, and some people supposedly do get photos, you know, but when you go into that type of shock or receive that kind of trauma, when you see something that's 10 foot tall that is not supposed to exist, that, you know, has plagued you, from your first sighting that, you know, I, I didn't tell anybody really about, like I said. I mean, so in all actuality, a lot of things are going through my mind. Like, you know, that was real. I'm I'm still going back to the first sighting now. I'm saying in my head, you know, oh, my God, it was real. You know, I, why was I questioning myself? I got a friend here that's witnessing the same thing. So on top of the shock and trauma of seeing this huge 10-foot species standing in front of me, I'm trying to deal with that and the first sighting all in one thing while having tunnel vision while going through all of this. So, no, the camera aspect, you know, and a lot of people have asked me, why didn't you take a photo? I mean, when you first tell a few people the story, which I did, family members and et cetera, the first thing, well, did you get a photo? You know, that's like their end-all, be-all, you know. But half the time, even if you do have a photo, 95% of the people discredit it anyway. So you have to go and and do the right scientific stuff, I call it, to get them accredited. You know, we've got to prove it, and we've got to go in the right direction. But it's been been an experience, I tell you that. If an experienced hunter can get buck fever, how can you blame them for not doing so when they're under so much stress? It only makes sense that they wouldn't be able to do that, so why blame them? Yeah, I... I mean, I understand what you're saying, too, but I don't believe in trying to blame anybody. I think we should all try to come together as, as, as a whole unit. You know, it doesn't matter what your belief is or what anybody else's belief is, what they are or what it may be, but if we all come together and, and try to prove it, I, I think we might be better off because in the end, no matter what you believe it is, what I believe it is, or what anybody else believes it is, we're all trying to do one thing, and that's prove it. So if we all started getting on that sense of mentality, I believe we'd go a little bit farther. You've been making a lot of really good points. I couldn't agree more. When you had either of these encounters, did you notice any strange smells? Did either Sasquatch make any sounds that you could hear? There were no smells associated with either one. I don't know if the wind was not in my favor to smell anything or if they were the second one was a little too far away to smell anything. But I did not associate any type of smell. I noticed a lot of people do that. Maybe they are really super close to them to smell that. Like I said, I was thirty feet from the juvenile and I, I didn't smell anything. But maybe, you know, then again the wind was not in my favor Maybe that's the reason my dog didn't, you know, encounter or smell what I seen. 
But as far as that goes, no. During my research, I've heard them make some different sounds in tree knocks and rock clacking and things like that nature, but not during my actual encounters that I previously had, you know, with the juvenile and the huge male. But after that, which would be 2015, is, is you know, when I started getting into a little bit of research and paying attention and doing things, and, you know, that that's when I started having some different noises happen and, and things like that. Ah, I see. Something we didn't get into that I'm wondering about is, do you think that you stumbled upon these two Sasquatch, or do you think they had been shadowing you, and then you saw them after the fact? My honest opinion? Well, my honest opinion is two-sided. I believe that they were curious about the metal detectors, because both sightings happened while it was metal detecting. Well, why we were the second time. But I don't know if they were curious on the sounds that they were making because there are certain modes on a metal detector when you go into a pinpoint mode. It's kind of like if you find an object and you want to pinpoint its exact location, you hold a button and you proceed to swing back and forth over it and it narrows the search field down. So it gives off a higher, like a whoo-whoo sound is the best way I can explain that. And I believe they were curious to these sounds that were going off. As far as, like, a stalking, I think they were trying, the male had to obviously be crouched down and try to be safer because he's so big. You would notice him if he was directly standing up or walking. You know, he, he was in that stealth mode position as to where the juvenile could be completely stood up behind a tree and stay more hidden. But he seemed more curious. That's the expression I got off of him when he was turning. That that was like a curious reaction, it, it looked like. I don't know how to explain that, but just the look in the face seemed more curious. As opposed to the male, uh, the big male, he seemed more aggravated. He seemed kind of like, you're in my way, or that was the way I was going, why are you here, what are you doing? But let me state again that it's May, and that's when all the snow melts. You know, we get four feet of snow up there, five foot of snow. You can't get up there, so we're some of the first people that are usually up there to detect. You know, the snowmobilers fly through there and whatnot, stuff like that, but that's really it. Otherwise, you can't even get up the road to get there. So it, it might have been we caught him by surprise that time, but I think it had a lot to do with the metal detectors. Uh, I think they were curious to the sound. If that area is that hard to get to that time of year, it only makes sense that you would run into them up there. I mean, it must be a haven since they wouldn't have to worry about people coming around. That is unless they've got metal detectors. Right, right. Yeah, uh, there are other people that have been up there metal detecting. Like I said, there's people that come up there and hike. But our hunting season ends in, oh, usually December 15th. But if we get a lot of snow by then, you know, a lot of hunters are up there and go in certain areas. But by that time, if we've got a lot of snow, it's not plowed. You can't get up there. So sometimes they can hunt up there. Like this past winter, it wasn't very bad. You were able to get up there and hunt, things like that. So there are people that go up there and use the area. But I think... This family unit that is up there, I call it a family unit because I've seen multiple size tracks up there and then got multiple size castings out of the area. 
I believe they've been there for a really long time, and they've just found ways to work around people. That makes sense. Yeah, like I said before, it sounds like it would be a really good area for them to live because obviously if people aren't up in those areas, especially that time of year, any more than they would be with all that snow, it would be a perfect place for them to hang out. Have you heard about any other encounters taking place in those two areas since you've had those encounters? Well, I can state that I ran into a lady, I don't know her name, and she was actually at the parking area. and. I proceeded to talk with her. She does nature photography and stuff like that. And she hikes the trail and stuff like that. And she said she had an encounter with something, but she could not see what it was. But it was making all kinds of crashing noises in the woods. You know, so I just briefly asked her. But I didn't even explain any of my detail or any of my happenings to her. I just wanted to know. I said, hey, have you had anything odd happen up here to you? And she's like, what do you mean odd? I said, have you heard or seen anything? And that's when she proceeded to tell me. She was actually from, like, the Mayville area, but she travels around and does photography. As far as any other encounters, in the documentary, uh, it's kind of based in northwest Pennsylvania and Chautauqua County, where there's been a lot of sightings all over the place. So in the DVD documentary, I did learn about quite a bit of sightings that aren't far from me. In that specific area, no but my plan is down below off that ridge, there are some houses on a lower road, which actually their property would butt up to the federal land state area. I was going to try to interview some of those people myself this year because they live there year-round, which their main highway is plowed through. So I was going to ask them if they had any type of encounters. Uh, I just had not got to that yet. That was some of my research planning for this year. I think you're on to something there, Ryan. If they do live right there, I'm sure they do have some good stories to tell. I believe so. Uh, it's not actually right there, but it, it's, you know, it's within, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing if you were to walk directly straight line from that horse and buggy trail down through that woods to that road, it's kind of diagonal from it. It'd be like a thousand yards maybe 2,000 yards maximum. But then again, that their property butts right to that state property, so you know maybe they've heard something, maybe they've seen something. You never know, and all, all you can do is really ask. It, some people don't even want to tell you. You know, even if they did, it, it, it's so diverse out there. You know, they don't want to be ridiculed. You know what? My hat goes off to you. It's hard enough to do door-to-door sales. I've never done that before, but When you see how a door-to-door salesperson gets treated, that's bad enough. I can't imagine if you go door-to-door knocking and trying to dig up information about whether they've seen a Sasquatch or not. That's got to be tough. Uh, I'm imagining it's going to be, but my plan is to try to catch some of them in the summertime, maybe being in the yard or in the field or on their porch. My ultimate goal, too, is I'd like to try to make a documentary of my own area uh, and, and possibly use some of their witness encounters in it. So hopefully, you know, maybe they've had experiences and they'll want to talk. It's just how you approach them. You know, I'm from the area. I'm not an outsider. I know the area pretty well. So, you know, I, I can divulge certain information that might f- make them feel comfortable. And if you can make a witness feel comfortable, you're getting somewhere. Because nine out of ten times if somebody's interviewed and, and they're 
uncomfortable with the questioning or, or they don't understand everything from the beginning, you're not going to get the full story or, or the correct answers or anything out of them. So as long as I can make them feel comfortable, I think I'll be all right. I like your ideas and I like your approach. I think you will have some really good luck with that when you go out there and start talking to these people. Having been up in that part of New York State and consequently having had a chance to see what that country is like, that is a really good, at least in my opinion, it's a really good area for them to live. I can't imagine a better layout for them, actually. When you had your two encounters, did you notice any strange happenings with the ambient sounds around you when you saw them? As far as sounds, I can state that it's a yes and no factor. I had the headphones on for a little while, but I do notice now during the research, too, that the area is null and void sometimes of a lot of birds and rabbits. I mean, you go out there, I don't see squirrels, I don't see rabbits, I don't hear crickets. It'll be silent. And during one of the encounters, it was silent because I did have, when we seen the mail, when I pulled my headphones off, I heard nothing. I don't know, maybe that is from shock, but even afterward, I didn't really hear anything. I didn't hear any, any birds chirping, which is a natural occurrence in the woods. I'm a hunter. I'll sit in a tree stand for five hours. You know, I hear birds. I see squirrels. I see rabbits. I, I see everything. But in the, these areas up here, I'm starting to notice a trend. Like, I'm not seeing anything. I, I, I've yet in, in four years to be at that location and see a deer. And we have a healthy population in western New York, especially Chautauqua County, of, of deer population. So it's it's odd. I mean, you'll see tracks here and there, but you figure 4,000 acres at least that butts up to a couple other tracks of land in, in state land that is 4,000 and another 4,000. You know, you're looking at 12,000 acres, uh, give or take. There should be more animal activity. And when you're spending four, five, six hours up there if you're metal detecting and, and you don't see a rabbit or a squirrel or a deer or anything, you know, that's when I started to think later on. So yeah, I'm actually glad you asked me that. Oh, no, I was just wondering about that. I think it's only natural to wonder that. And that is a lot of land. If they can eat their way through that much territory, whew, it really makes you wonder how big their ranges really are. Well, I believe their range... Another another aspect that I'm trying to get into with my research is to prove that they migrate. I believe that they do migrate, and the reason I say that is because most of my activity that I am getting is from, like, April, May, and June in this area and some of July. But then after that, it seems like the area goes really, really quiet, regardless of what type of research that I'm doing. I feel that they move off down toward Pennsylvania, Allegheny area, which I've learned in August and September, a lot of sightings come out of Allegheny. And some of the witnesses that were in that I've seen Bigfoot documentary that I learned about They've had sightings down there, you know, in, in the Allegheny area in August and September. So I believe that they move uh, and migrate. And the reason I'm saying that is to have the type of interactions that I have and casting the foot tracks and all that's going on, and then for it just to go null and void, it doesn't really make sense. But then again, I, I don't believe that they're migrating for food. There's food everywhere. I mean, there's berries and apple trees and Deer and all kinds of animals make it through these harsh, harsh winters. 
So there's food everywhere. I mean, there's deer, there's, we have healthy populations of all kinds of animals here in western Europe. Uh, so if they do eat meat or they do eat apples and, and fruit and, and whatnot, there's an abundance. So I don't see there's any reason for them to move off, uh, and migrate for food. Maybe in other states, but not here. But what I'm getting to is I think that they're migrating for a mating pattern. Kind of like salmon do, or crabs go hundreds of miles to mate and, and things like that. That might be like they're pre-primed. It might be built into them. That's what they got to do. Whales and dolphins do the same thing. They, they move off hundreds of miles and things like that. But I'm trying to prove that they do migrate. It's going to be hard to prove that when the species isn't even proven itself. But these are steps in my research that I'm really trying to take on and tackle. Yeah, you just might be on to something there. When you think about how big one Sasquatch is and how much it would require to keep itself going food-wise, and then you multiply that times how many might be in a group, I can't even imagine how much food on a daily basis a whole troop of them would go through, but that's just one of the many questions that we're still looking for answers to. From talking to you earlier, I never did find out why did your second encounter prompt you to start researching when your first encounter did not? Well, the first encounter I was by myself, and being by myself, I, I think that's only natural that after seeing something like that, you would start to question yourself. You know, you don't want to tell anybody. It plays tricks on your mind. It's horrible. It really is horrible. If it's something you're not ready for and something that kind of turns history upside down, I mean, we're not taught that they're supposed to be there. So uh, I, the second encounter, having somebody with me, it validated everything. It validated my first sighting. I stopped questioning myself. I said, I, I knew that that happened. Having somebody there meant the world of difference to be able to talk to them about it and say, you know, I'm not essentially crazy. I'm, I'm, this really happened to me. So it, it was a, of huge importance. So that kind of prompted me like, you know, wow, they're there, they're real. I don't know what struck me to go research, but maybe it is from the trauma, but it pushed me in that direction that I felt the need to, to fill the void to go research. When you experience something that traumatic and stressful, I guess you never really do know how you're going to react. Just because you reacted one way the first time you had an encounter, that doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily react the same way the second time around. So I guess I shouldn't be all that surprised. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show tonight and sharing all the details of these encounters you've had. That's no problem. I just, I feel it's necessary to get some of my uh, story out there. And, you know, I, I hopefully some people do come forward and, and start explaining what they've seen. And, you know, hopefully the community can start getting back together and, you know, moving toward one goal. You know, that's what I'd really like to see is, you know, no matter what, people believe in, you know, everybody's proof out there is that's what we want. We want proof. Let's prove it. That That's what everybody wants. So hopefully everybody can work toward that. And, you know, maybe somebody hearing this says, hey, you know, that works for me. So let's stop picking and choosing and, and doing what we do. Let's just move toward one common goal. And, you know, maybe science will see that. Maybe certain scientists that are on board waiting for these good samples and, and things like that we'll see we're actually trying and start to take this seriously. So hopefully it'll all work out. Hopefully it will. 
I can't tell you how impressed I am with you. You're an amazing ambassador for this field. If we had more people like you in it, I think we would probably have discovered conclusive evidence for their existence by now. Thanks again so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. I thank you. Have a great night. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That's it for another episode of Bigfoot Eyewitness Radio with Vic Cundiff. If you've had a Sasquatch encounter and would like to be a guest on the show, please go to BigfootEyewitness.com and submit a report. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.